And here we go. The Sprista's Goose. <laughs> I don't apocalypse on Shabbos. <laughs> Trump Shabbos. <laughs> I say that doesn't sound like too good of a story for him then. <laughs> yes, it's an 80s film, but it's a quintessential 80s film. That motherfucker gets me excited about science. But yes, I, I do think that this movie requires a couple more views. I have the same cup size as Doc Hawk. <laughs> Give me my sandwich. <laughs> no crusts. Was it an instant classic for you? Uh, no. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, moviegoers of all ages, welcome to Don't Be Crazy Podcast. I'm Justin Kavanagh. With me as always, Mr. Zachary Rancourt. Here we discuss and dissect what makes a film, past or present, absolutely amazing or just pure rubbish. All that we ask of each other, don't be crazy. Don't be crazy, Zach. Hey, give me those cockroach protein bars. Dang. I would not eat one of those. I would starve and die. That was one of the biggest shockers of the film for me. I was like, that's gross. That's all I said when I saw that. I was just, that's gross. People don't even know what we're talking about yet, man. You are <laughs> jumping the gun. Spoiler alert. There's roach bars. <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, Justin. How are ya? I am fabulous, even though you ruined everything. Oh, I just spoiled it all for You're everyone. A ruiner of things. The big reveal. A, a movie. <laughs> 25 from, minutes into the movie. A movie from 2013. Huge spoiler. Yes. <laughs> of course, we're talking about Snowpiercer by Bong Joon-ho. 2013. This is, this is the movie with the train, and there's snakes, and... And it's ice. <laughs> snakes. <laughs> snakes. Snakes on a train. On a train. <laughs> Isn't this the Hunger Trains? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> With Katniss Everdeen? <laughs> yes. It's nope. exciting stuff. Gwyneth Paltrow has two realities when she gets on the train. <laughs> what was that one called? Sliding, sliding doors? Something like that, yeah. It's two strangers, and they meet on a train, <laughs> and one wants to kill one's wife, and the other one has to kill his dad. <laughs> Oh my god, that's intense. That's a strangers on a train, so. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyways. So uh a girl on a train. Girl I on like a train. Too. The murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> a lot of train movies. Ah. This is like the 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 zombie craze. A lot of zombie movies, a lot of train movies. Yeah. Uh similar to train to um Busan. It, training day. <laughs> training train day. <laughs> Well, so uh, Snowpiercer stars Chris Evans, um, Kang Ho Song, Ed Harris, John Hurt, Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, Ewan Bremmer, Koa Song, and Allison Pill. It's got a, a good cast. Um, definitely does. Uh, I, I didn't know much about this movie. I mean, it went... It, I saw it on Netflix a couple years ago, and I never watched it. <laughs> Uh, it was kind of one like, of those. That looks terrible. I was like, oh, Pass. oh straight, straight to video. Oh wait, I already have it on video. I was like, Captain America doesn't cu- carry an axe with him. What the hell? Yeah, we'll talk about the axe scene. Yeah. Um, how'd this movie do, Justin? Oh. <laughs> Sigh. <laughs> you know what? Here's the funny thing. So, I, I want to preface this that. That this is an art house movie. And those of you that have that are fortunate enough to live in a city that has a movie theater that shows those sort of off-Broadway type of movies, the, the art house films that aren't for everyone, the film student in you will eat it up 
and then everyone else that might be lost on you with the with the random oh my god I love that movie sort of uh, argument. And so art house movies are always interesting because I feel like there is a very um, you know polarizing view of these things. It's either you love it or you hate it, and According to all these amazing reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes, everyone loves this movie. They are gaga. This is like pre- <laughs> premier produce on the Rotten Tomatoes. It actually has a 95% uh, from crazy. Super crazy. The audience gives it a 72. So this is kind of those, you know, a lot of people absolutely hated it, but most people thought it was okay. But here we go. At the end of the day, we're going to go over some of these reviews here. Jim Slotnick sounds made up. Toronto Sun. It's a wicked, violent. <laughs> I can't even read this review. <laughs> it's wicked, violent, and one of the only amazing movies of the summer worth talking about after the credits roll. I will agree it's worth talking about after the credits roll. Uh, here's a negative review uh, Snowpiercer. Warms the heart, but doesn't penetrate it. That was by Inku Kang. Ooh, I'll, pen- I'll penetrate that. Listen to you. <laughs> sorry. John Semele, Globe and Mall, or I'm sorry, Globe and Mail, says, This is powerful stuff, and all the more so for its straightforwardness. It's interesting that it says straightforwardness because there's a lot of back and forth in this movie. <laughs> yeah, this is not a straightforward film. Yeah. I'm, I'm not inclined to in- agree with Mr. John there. Yeah. He's uh, full of shit. <laughs> but uh, as far as the box office goes, uh, this motion picture show had a budget of, what did we end up saying? $39 million. And a lot of cheddar. It pulled down a whopping $86.7 million. So it made some money. That's, yeah. Especially for an art house film. Like, at the end of the day, that's really what this is. It says it's a... You know, it's a sci-fi action spectacular, but um, I don't know. Based on the way it was filmed and presented, I'm going art house on this one. Yeah, for sure. Um, some fun facts. Uh, this is uh, Bong Joon-ho's first English-language movie. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal and Dustin Hoffman auditioned for this movie. I'm assuming Dustin Hoffman was probably auditioning for Gilliam, Jake Gyllenhaal for uh, Curtis Everett. Um, but that went to uh, John Hurt and Chris Evans, respectively. I could, I could picture Dustin Hoffman being Ed Harris's character of Wilford. He'd be like, uh, Judge Wapner. Oh, Judge, Judge, Judge Wapner. Yeah. <laughs> Kmart sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... My friend Matt loves that movie so much. What else? Oh, so this film, this movie was filmed in 72 days. On a train? Yeah, on a train. It's trains out there this big? Yeah. No, it was mostly probably filmed on like a studio, a sound studio or something like that. There were no additional lighting. There was no additional lighting used while filming the torchlight fight scene, which we'll talk about later. But that's pretty cool because there was some pretty good visuals in that. Um. Yeah. Oh, Chris Evans. So this is 2013, and um, so he was already in the midst of filming um Captain America, and so 
uh, Bong Joon-ho was, had reservations about casting him um, because of his muscular physique, and he felt that as a resident of the extremely poverty-stricken tail section, um, that Curtis should not be physically fit. So they used costuming and different camera angles to make sure Evans looked kind of weak. Because um, everyone knows Chris Evans has a sexy body, so it's kind of like a Bowflex body. Shake weight, Bonnie. Shake weight. Uh, all right. Well, should I uh, give a description there? So that yeah, was uh, that was our fun, inter- inter- interesting trivia. Um, no, that was it for the. Well, I mean, yeah. There's not much into it. it, it it's it's kind of small, but um, yeah. That's, that's all I had. Oh, uh, it is also based off of the novel. Justin, you can say it because you're better at the French than I am. Right. Transpersonage. <laughs> what what he said. Le transpersonage. So it's based off of that novel, uh, and it takes some liberties, obviously, but that is the source material for it. It's a graphic novel. Uh, I think so. Um, okay. That means there's pictures. See, it's not just words. <laughs> the pictures help tell the story. See, it's one of the talkies. Hey, <laughs> we're gonna make a star out of you. See. <laughs> Well, I feel like when you're on a train, you gotta do some sort of period piece. Period piece. Why? No one rides. No one rides trains no more. This is a period piece. It's 2031. That's I know. That's why. That's why I'm just talking like a period piece. That, that's not how they talk in 2031. I mean, they're going to. We're gonna go backwards. They probably talk like this, like computers. <laughs> they are robots. I don't know why. <laughs> All right. So. Let's get into the synopsis. Sure. Set in 2031, the entire world is frozen except for those that aboard the snow Snowpiercer. For 17 years, the world le, survivors. The Snowpiercer. That's <laughs> All right, let's try that again. For 17 years, the world survivors are on a train hurtling around the globe, creating their own economy and class system. Led by Curtis, Chris Evans, a group of lower class citizens living in squalor at the back of the train are determined to get to the front of the train and spread the wealth around. Each section of the train holds new surprises for the group who have to battle their way through. A revolution is underway. Thank you, Ann Campbell from IMDb. Um, all right, Justin, what did you think of Snowpiercer? I think... <laughs> I'm already anticipating I, it with I, sound. <laughs> I think it is a real struggle to watch. I definitely enjoy talking about it. I think there are a lot of fascinating subtleties about this motion picture show that are worth diving into. Um, I love the the class system. Um, I love the idea of it being on a train. I just hate watching this movie. I think it is so long and so boring that I just I can't take it, especially with the slowdown shots and. Oh, it's just it, it it frustrates me how bored I am when I feel like everything that is in this movie should have been a recipe for success. I like all the ingredients. I just hate the finished product. Hate's a strong word. I find it boring. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not. I, I agree with you to an extent. When when you text me and it, you basically were like, yawn, I'm so bored, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'd never seen this movie before, and you had seen it once or maybe twice. Um, you own it on 4K. It's okay. Yeah, um, I, I see things in 8K, and I saw all the flaws in this movie. <laughs> um, so this was my first time watching it. Um, so seeing as you were incredibly bored, I was 
really trying to be like, nope, Justin's wrong, Justin's wrong. Impossible. I, I, Impossible. Will, <laughs> I will have to agree with you a bit that it has uh, some issues with pacing, um, but it also has issues with just the choices that they make. Um, so I disagree with that first critic that said that it's a very straightforward film. I mean, maybe yes on face value if you're... If you're looking looking at not it, paying at, attention, <laughs> right? If you're not paying attention, you're looking at it as, all right, we have an uprising and they're getting to an endpoint and then they're sacrificed. I mean, sure that 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 trope or motif has been done in a film before, but th- this movie, it's a hard watch at first. Um, it definitely looks like it's on a budget. Some of the CG is just straight garbage. It's on um, a thirty-nine million dollar budget. Yeah, and but most I mean, of that went to fake snow outside. <laughs> Most of that went to Chris Evans, probably. But I, my thing is, um, yeah, like that that can get distracting. Um, and there's there's certain glimmers of hope in this film where you get some amazing shots. I mean, like the um, the whole axe battle scene, which we'll talk about later. I thought was fuck was fucking awesome. I thought that was so well done. Um, and then there's other just really cool things that are in this movie. But ultimately, on first viewing. It's it's a rough watch. I I slept on it and was like, huh, wh- what am I going to get from this? But after reviewing some things and after diving into YouTube and researching some articles, I am incredibly intrigued by this movie. And I would I would go out there and say that I I don't think it's far fetched that a lot of the critics have given it such high praise. Yeah, I mean. A couple of shows ago, we were talking about what makes a good movie, and one of one of our points was uh, the ability to, uh, you know, invoke conversation and get people talking about it, and really deep diving into some of the themes and ideas behind these movies. And Snowpiercer is no exception to that. I mean, I could talk about this movie all day. I love hearing all the theories. I, I especially am partial to that theory of it being a sequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh. There's, there's, a, <laughs> there's a brilliant video out there that, that really shows all the comparisons to it, and it is fascinating. Blow your mind. Absolutely. And, and I love that. And, um, you know, even today, when I had any kind of free time, I was just watching YouTube videos on this movie. And what's interesting is that I feel like I can pick up on people's sort of distaste for a lot of this movie, but they still have enjoyable conversations about it. So that being part of the criteria for what makes a good movie, at least on this show, Snowpiercer certainly qualifies. Yeah. I mean, I remember that uh, at my birthday, um, you and my buddy Aaron were were talking about this, but um, I stepped away and we don't have to go into exactly what you guys talked about, but I know that you both were kind of discussing it and I caught the tail end of like when I slept on it and it was kind of discussed with me um, by a friend that uh, it made more sense. And I'm just putting words in your mouth essentially, but that's what I remember kind of you, you saying with, I have a big mouth. I have like hamster cheeks. And so I could hold a lot of words. You can eat a whole, Six inch subway in six seconds. I can eat an alphabet soup. What? I can eat an alphabet soup. I know. I, I heard. I wasn't asking what to clarify it again. It's, it's kind of my thing. I always say stupid shit, and Alex is like, what? And then I, I repeat it the exact same way. Uh, Guys are crazy. 
But okay, so you are right. So uh, according to always, I'm according, always right. Nope. I've done told you that. Yeah, except when you're crazy. Um, so according to No Film School, uh, there are six things elements that make a good film, and it is script, character, acting, timing, sound, and visuals. Now, for this movie, I think it it hits some of those ticks, but there are a lot of them that it doesn't necessarily. And I think that it's great that we can have these conversations because, again, like you were saying, that's that's what can make a film great, is if we can dig into this and think about this and just continue to talk. Um, so I, I wrote some stuff down, and I, I, I'm curious on your, on your thoughts on it. Um, let's, let's just start out then uh, immediately with that comparison between Willy Wonka. Um, so like you were saying, and we have to give the, the author credit, because I, I think, did I send you that link, or did you just find that link earlier for YouTube? The uh, Willy Wonka one? Yeah. Uh, no, I just I just found it on YouTube. Okay. You sent me other videos, but yeah, that was one that I watched. So Rhino Stew has an amazing video, um, and it's why Snowpiercer is a sequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I, I, I'm assuming that most people have seen Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, um, but he dives into the um, and I'm a sucker for for fan film theories, but this one is so incredibly plausible and so well thought out that I was sitting there being like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, that is so cool. So, I mean, in Willy Wonka, right, you have uh, these, let's use Charlie as an example, com- coming from poverty where his mom, like, stirs towels in a big tub and serves them cabbage soup every day um, to working his way through the ranks uh, essentially, in order to, he's gifted this opportunity to go to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and working his way through the ranks there. Um, they, him and what, five other kids, four other kids, go yeah. through this crazy labyrinth that Willy Wonka has created, this death trap that Willy Wonka has created. Um, and each, each test essentially that they go through, one of them dies off or one of them. Uh, Early murder. Yeah, is no longer in existence. <laughs> One of them chews a piece of blueberry bubblegum and turns into a blueberry. Violet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a real piece of shot. Violet, you're being violet, Violet. <laughs> or you're turning violet, Violet. Um, similarities with that. Uh, and then finally, you know, Charlie makes it to the end. Um, but it turns Spoiler out. Just, alert. Yeah, but it turns out it's just a test. If you haven't seen the 1973 <laughs> Willy Wonka, or whatever it is, um, so he makes it to the end. Now, in Snowpiercer, this is all the same. This entire movie we're watching as Curtis and his his uh, tail inhabitants they work their way through the ranks, see the different class systems throughout the train, and then it, they end up meeting the creator, the the Wilford slash Willy Wonka character. Um, and it turns out that it is just a test for passing on that lineage that that Wilford doesn't want or Willy Wonka doesn't want anymore. Um, and then it, it, it goes on and on. I mean, there's, there's other things I don't want to, I don't want to get too much into the video, but it, it is fantastic. Again, you should, everyone should watch it. But um, I mean, I'm curious, Justin, like, did you, did you at, at all think of Willy Wonka while you were watching Snowpiercer? No, not at all. I did think of the matrix and how in matrix reloaded, when Neo is confronted with the uh, architect and how he's talking about how there's always a one and we got to reset the system and 
you know, find the flaws and, and retool it, make it better. Um, I started thinking about that and how there's this revolution all the time to sort of thin out the population. But, you know, I, I can't argue what came first as far as chicken or the egg or the transpersonaires with uh, <laughs> the Matrix. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like the graphic novel was written, you know, a long time ago, but um, at the end of the day, I was just like, didn't we have this conversation with Neo and the Architects once? <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're right, though, but we've, but we've seen this in other sci-fi films, too, and I think that this is a central piece to certain sci-fi, to the sci-fi genre, because even in Total Recall, we had this idea where um, he was given a choice, right? Um, where Curtis was given a choice by uh, Wilford to fulfill his quote-unquote destiny and become the captain of the ship, or he could have um, destroyed it, like he was trying to do. Like, or, or... I, I don't know if Curtis is qualified. I don't know if he ever went to train school. He didn't. And knows how to fix the train. He, he, he didn't. But um, in Total Recall, you have... Um, Arnold's you have character. train classes implanted into your brain. <laughs> you have Arnold's character in, in the scene when um, he uh, is in the hotel room with the doctor and he's explaining to him, you know, like, this is all part of recall. If you shoot me, you're going to get lost into this, whatever, or you can just come out of it and we'll be we'll go back to um, normalcy. Right. So and then in the Matrix, you have that same thing. So I think that choice is a big uh, thematic element in in both Willy Wonka and Snowpiercer. Um, he presents these options almost as a temptation to these to these kids or to these people, and they have a choice. They can either sit back, do what they're supposed to do, live their lives, and I'm speaking just to the Snowpiercer, and contribute to society, or they have a choice to have in uprising um to push forward to constantly go forward and figure out what's going on in the engine room and get there um, it's not about how hard you hit it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward thanks balboa you're welcome <laughs> you, you can owe me I, i'll owe yeah um but that choice is important because you think about it and great so let's say curtis is he makes it to the engine room right and he doesn't even know that you know pepsi twist occurs and gilliam is is in cahoots with with wilford um what was chris evans trying to do for this what was his end game what was his choice when That's he got a really to the good question so is, is he, he supposed to hit the emergency stop button or is he supposed to to just have equality i mean there's all these different classes there's all these different things each mm-hmm. car represents something different. And, you know, we never really see any, like, sort of like the, the poor folks in the back. We never see any sort of, like, apartment cars, you know, where these rich people live. We just yeah. are left with the idea that they just hang out in the spa all day or they hang out at the rave all day. You know, I don't know if those cars don't exist or if the movie just chooses not to show them. But I feel like we're going from car to car to car to car. And and the life is getting progressively better. Um, and not everyone has windows, um, so they're kind of oblivious to what's going on in the outside world. Even in the 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 really wealthy cars, there's still not windows. It's just sort of a sauna or 
you know, some drug room or something. It's really weird. But at the end of the day, I don't really know what else exists on this train other than, you know, the back sucks and the front is where it's at. So I don't know if he just wants to hang out in the front or if he wants to get all of his people that are suffering to the front as well. We really don't know what his end game is. Exactly. And I mean, he's his choices or his quote unquote free will, which can be argued is not a thing changes because with each passing car he's learning about this and this and this and like how much better it can be up there and he has no idea what he's going into i mean and that's exemplified with that amazing act scene where he's just his goal is and his plan is open the door get to the end train car and he even says that to gilliam he goes it doesn't matter if there's 10 or 20 train cars it's get to the end but he doesn't have that plan of what do i do from here um so it's that interesting, like the, that that choice that we have to make of deciding free will versus destiny. Like, do I need to be at the engine room? Like, I have to get there. And and Curtis Everett, he gets so distracted by that in the film that he even has his friend Edgar in that scene. Um, well, let me back it up a little bit. He has to make a lot of different choices that are not necessarily maybe the most humane, but he does it for um, the, the reasons are good, <laughs> right? The greater good are the reasons of survival. But what is the greater good, right? So it's it's just so interesting. Um, I want to talk about that that scene. So what scene? The axe battle scene. So. That was one of our first moments of true tension uh, because I did not, I was not sold on um, the sound effects. Uh, They really threw me off for a lot of stuff. So at the probably like 20 minutes in when he realizes that the guards at the tail end, they don't have bullets and then they all fight and then they get through uh, certain doors and then the big reveal, like the, the protein bars or cockroaches and stuff, which was disgusting. Um, there was not really any, that was all just groundwork, right? That was part of the first act. Um, and then you get the clairvoyant Yona who he explains to her, he's like, oh, so you're clairvoyant. And she's like, yeah. And right as she says that, she's like, don't open the door. They open it to that incredible scene with all these masked, like gimps from, from Pulp Fiction who <laughs> they, they all have hatchets and shit. And yeah, you can't. You can't uh, get blood on hatches and then share your hatches. That's how you get AIDS, Zach. You can't can't share hatches. It's bad news. That's how you get the AIDS. Yeah, it's not it's not from licking toilets or having unprotected sex. It's from <laughs> sharing bloody axes. Ugh. I mean, honestly, it's like I'm trying to contain the outbreak, and these assholes are driving the monkey to the airport. I don't like it. <laughs> that movie scared me when I was a kid. Outbreak. Oh, I don't know why. It just I never wanted a cookie because he like that he eats that cookie on the airplane and the little kid almost takes it. And I was just I don't know. It freaked me out for some reason. <laughs> it was so weird. So this uh, whole scene is weird. Yeah. Especially with the catfish and the and the, the axe and the blood and sharing it. And I don't, I don't get it. So, OK, perfect. That's awesome. So I also didn't get it until I started researching it more now. Um, so the axe battle scene like. The initial when they're getting ready to fight, you know, it's it's a classic standoff. The one side with the tail inhabitants versus the the gimps and stuff, yeah, and they're that, sitting that there. old chestnut. Yeah, the gimps the gimps pull out a giant fish 
and they all cut into its belly and put blood on the tip of their axes. Now, if you remember the part when um, the Chancellor Mason, uh, Tilda Swinton, she takes them to the sushi bar. Mm -hmm. They walk through that giant aquarium. They explain, or she explains that it's a perfect ecosystem in that aquarium. So that's a microcosm for the entire train. But they only have sushi two times a year. So they have it in July and like September or whatever, because they have to call the the entire tank to control the population, the 74 percent, because they understand that you have to act in a certain way in order to balance the ecosystem um, and not overwhelm the resources. So by the Axemen using the fish, they're symbolically telling these tail people this is culling time, and we're going to kill you. Got it. Yeah? D I, I thought that was awesome. When I when that clicked, that like literally clicked for me, and I was like, holy shit, that was cool. Because I was in the same boat. I was like, this is awesome. Why do they have a fish? That was really fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. But it's after... Like, it's like it, when Link has, like, in Legend of Zelda, he just has all this shit in his pocket. He's got a raft. <laughs> he's got a boomerang. He's got a bow and arrow. <laughs> this guy's got a fish and an axe. <laughs> <laughs> listen <laughs> um ridiculous no yeah but it's um so i i didn't and, and so that's what i mean with the straightforward like there's no way that that critic knew that right away like because that didn't come until after um so i thought that that was cool but then when it, the fight itself was was really really neat it was gory as hell um you didn't know who was gonna win i thought it was fun when they all put on their um uh, night vision goggles and the lights went out and then the torches came in uh um, fire yeah yeah whatever his name was like julio or something like that we need uh, fire. fire chan fire it chan. guy <laughs> it was Ch chan they're like chan we need fire and he's just running a torch like the olympics yeah. and then they uh yeah they come in there and then one little tor torch somehow turned into 30 torches but um uh, that was cool. That was really, really neat. Um, it was fun to see. But then we get that scene where uh, Curtis has to make a choice. Now, Edgar is held at knife point, or he has Chancellor Mason uh, writhing in pain and moving moving towards the front of the train. Um, from that video, every frame of painting, uh, it's excellent because choice is a big thing in video games and books um in film and in everyday life uh depicting it though is is one of those hard things to do and through close-ups and through directional camera placement we're able to, to see if you look at a train the front is right the back is left edgar's on the left side mason's on the right side and you simply just focus on chris evans you make him look left and right at that point you understand that left is to go back right is to go forward curtis's whole thing chris evans his whole thing and his whole goal for this is to keep pushing forward and that's what he tells um gilliam is he he has to keep pushing forward so when you see it happen and you're like what the hell are you doing man you're letting your friend die you then realize he's doing this for the greater good. He's making a choice because he thinks this is the right thing to do, even sacrificing his quote unquote friend's life, which at first really pissed me off because I, I, I didn't think that he should have got killed. Oh no. I was like, yes, he's bothering me. Slowing him down. <laughs> Why? Why was he bothering you? <laughs> oh no, he wasn't. I'm just oh. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's, 
ultimately it's just serving that thing to push him forward. You know, yeah. like he can't go back. Like I'm in this in this too deep. After all the sacrifice, I can't quit now. Yeah, that and so to quote that uh, YouTube video, "Every Frame a Painting." Um, the movie could be drawn up as a story of a man who thinks that he needs to keep pushing forward, and yet everything that anchors him, that gives him his humanity, is behind him. Right. So his friends, the the tale that he was with, he's leaving them in the dust essentially for his end goal. Um, this is a bad example, but it's kind of like um, that new movie, shit, on Netflix with Ben Affleck and the huge cast. Um, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like Triple Threat or something? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Triple Frontier. Triple Frontier. Is that what um, it's called? Yeah, I'm sure it's. I'm pretty sure it's called Triple. Yeah, Triple Frontier. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Um, so like Ben Affleck, he is, he's constantly, or he's slowly losing his humanity as greed takes over from him, as he keeps pushing forward. Cause his whole thing is we keep going, we keep going, we take the money, we keep going. Ultimately spoiler, it costs him his life. Um, and you're just spoiling everything. I'm a spoiled egg. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm like Baruch salt, right? Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, I you, want to go first. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to know where you came from and, and keep that humanity with you. Um, and so I think that that, uh, is, is very apparent with Curtis there. All right. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I would like to take a second to just say that Tilda Swinton was like amazing in this movie. She really was. She's, she's fantastic. She's a chameleon, man. I can't. I, She's nuts. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I've ever seen her in something where I haven't been impressed with her. She's so good, like oh. just in everything that she does. And I, at first, I honestly didn't even know it was her. I'm like, that kind of looks like Tilda Swinton, but she had so much makeup and prosthetics on that yeah. I couldn't tell. And, and gross. I, I hated her. I freaking yeah. hated her. But that's the hallmark of a good actress. Like she's like, Hey, guess what? I'm a chameleon. Like you're saying, and you're not going to recognize me and I'm just going to be ruthless and awesome. So good. So, okay. So I'm going to pose something, Justin, and this one I, I thought about a lot. All right. In order for society to, to survive control and ba- control and balance must be in order. This balance is manipulated by the government. So Gilliam and Wilford, um, who they instill their fear in the inhabitants through that revolution, uh, that big climactic thing at the end when he, he talks about that, that was the Pepsi twist where those revolutions that they, that Gilliam kept talking about were, uh, manifested by both of them and they were fabricated essentially in order to drive fear mongering between the inhabitants of the train. So the balance is manipulated by the government and through natural selection and the natural selection could be the inhabitants choosing to literally kill others for food sources, survival of the fittest, right? So we can compare this to other schools of thought similar to, and I use this example, Thanos from Avengers. He's all about perfect balance, about moral choices, and how they maximize happiness for the maximum amount of people. Um, We may sit back and be like, you can't kill all these people. But in his mind, he's right. And I'm not going to sit and pretend like he's he's right. But I am going to, for the sake of uh, discussion, talk about some validity in his statements overpopulation is a thing and in in order for certain ecosystems to survive you need to have certain balance um 
it's kind of that Darwinism thing. Uh, it's that uh, natural selection, right? So the people who can survive the tail inhabitants, they will survive and they will birth children who then in turn are used for the front. Um, so it's cyclical. So my question to you, Justin, are you with me still? Sorry. Yeah. Okay. okay. My question to you is, are both Wilford and Gilliam mad, quote unquote, or are they just in fact doing what is right in order to survive? So for me, I think, I would think that they're wrong in that they should be coming up with ways to get off the train and find ways to survive off the train, as opposed to keeping up this this charade it would make more sense at least for for me to find a way to have humans thrive and get off the train but why risk something that you know is a proven commodity instead of trying to go out there and looking at like uh the the tale of those those seven frozen bodies that they had outside where they tried to go outside and they're now forever enshrined on a hill and the children look at them out the windows. Um, why risk that when, when you have this safety of this train and an ecosystem that works? Right. Well, I mean, I don't think it does work. They wouldn't have to kill everybody. So, but in, in, in their minds, they think it works in their minds in Gilliam and Wilford's they. Right. And so I'm telling you, asked me, do I think, are they mad? And I'm saying, yes, they are. That doesn't work. They, they are delusional. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I agree. Well, 17 years doesn't seem like a long time. Uh, that would definitely be a long time on a train. It's a very long time. Especially, I mean, you have the train babies who all they know is the train. train. babies. Yeah, all they know is the train. Um, they don't know the outside world. And that's juxtaposed when we see windows. Windows are a central theme in this because... It shows us what is out there and what we either fear or what we hope to to actually see. Because um, you're right. It's, it's not about continuing this ecosystem and being stuck inside and being complacent like this. It's trying to see if we can find other means of survival. And those right. windows... Yeah, they give ideas. That. It's hope. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, when, you're able, when you're able to peer through... You know, or behind the curtain, rather, mm-hmm. you know, you get ideas. You see, you know, what is possible yep. and how this is possible. And that's a big reason why the tale, why they don't have windows, is because you don't want to give them hope. You only give them a little bit of hope, and that's why they had the uh, the uprisings. It's right. to, to, to give them a, a little tiny sense of hope. But Which then, is what those notes are. Those notes yes. are hope that there's someone on the other side of these doors that cares about us, that wants us to, to succeed and get out. Yes. And and with that, like, so Wilford was, was driving that, and he was um, instilling that hope. But then also, inversely, the people towards the middle class and the upper class had this fear that someday they could get slaughtered by the tail rising up. So it, it's, it's the ebbs and flows are the yin and the yang for it. Um, so I think that, and, and just as a grand scheme, I think that this is brilliant in terms of what Wilfred and Gilliam are doing. Now, does that make it right? Absolutely not. But I think in the grand scheme, 
it's brilliant. I think that they are trying to both be deities here, more so Wilford than Gilliam. I think it was Wilford who was pulling the strings, but I think he's acting as a deity. He's acting as God. Um, look at all the religious symbolism throughout the film. I mean, the, the train is the Ark, uh, the sacred engine where they have this weird, disturbing Sunday school scene where they're praying to the Ark, singing weird, brainwashy, culty songs to it. Um, and everything getting there is to that point. I mean, people worship that. That is their existence and their and their savior. And there's these checks and balances. But I think Wilford thinks that he is is a god in that sense. Along the lines, too, with what Thanos has. Thanos has this insane amount of power. And I think that it's kind of contradictory to what he's trying to do, where he's trying to balance everything. And he's he's instilling this choice where he's trying to make the maximum happiness for the maximum amount of people. I, I buy it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't agree with it, but. Well, I mean, I, mean, I agree with you, but I don't yeah. agree with them. Yeah. And, and, and like that one, that one hit me immediately when I watched this. I was like, fuck you, Ed Harris. I love you so much, but <laughs> you are a bad man. Um, but he went really deep in the water in the best. <laughs> he also was the enemy at the gates, an enemy at the gates. <laughs> yeah. Where the music goes. <laughs> <laughs> for like two and a half hours. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure they stole from Willow, but that's another story. Probably. Um... <laughs> 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 Bang, I don't have any good songs from this, so I can't do it. <laughs> I think they're singing Enemy of the Gay. Enemy of the gates. <laughs> well, close the gate. Don't let them in. Credits. Uh, credits. <laughs> Five minute movie. Budget two dollars. Right in this shit. Honestly. Uh, um. So let's talk about the reliance on technology. Um. So I think that it's it's and I use juxtaposition again because I think it's just so interesting that um the the film you know. Starts out with, we created the CW7 um, to help eliminate... CW, the WWWB. <laughs> <laughs> we created Charmed <laughs> to help eliminate... <laughs> yeah, I like that Bathazar guy. He's pretty sweet. <laughs> to help eliminate global warming, right? So that's why we did it, is to help eliminate global warming. But these instead... Are, these are cold missiles that fire up and make snow? What is yeah. this? But instead, um, it actually backfired on us. Oh. And we relied so much on that technology to help us. And then it puts us in this or awful, like, apocalyptic state we're in. Um, but now, flash forward 17 years to 2031, Wilford's using technology and industry to create Snowpiercer. Uh, but it creates this false sense of eternity. So back to kind of what we were saying before, he he wants this to survive and to be forever because he thinks that this is eternity and so like what you were saying they should have been reaching out for something outside because at the end of the day nature is eternity nature is always going to prevail time and time again we see that but wilford thinks that the train is his salvation and he thinks that's the ultimate solution for survival you know, but in the in the reality, we see that nature is the one to prevail and is the forever constant. Um, we see, like when, um, damn it, I can't remember his name, but uh, the guy, the, the security specialist, when he um, sees the uh, the plane outside, right, and he explains to uh, Yona um, that 
Minsu, when Minsu sees the plane outside and he explains to Yona, like, oh, I, I saw that um, and it was a tale eight years ago and now I see the full plane. He understands that it's getting better out there. But Wilford, unfortunately, was was so narrow-minded that he couldn't look for this because he thought that his salvation was Snowpiercer. He was a fool. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's accurate. <laughs> I can, I can, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's, it's futile to fight natural selection. I mean, people live and they die. Um, and when you start trying to manipulate that, that's when you're playing God and that's when it's going to backfire on you. And, um, we see the climax of the movie where he's given that choice where Curtis is given that choice to, to, to lead the train. And instead he's like, screw you, Ed Harris. I'm going to save this kid. And, um, Minsu is going to blow up this door and we're going to end this bitch. Right. <clears throat> he. So that whole ending sequence is a bit much. You have sort of this 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 moment that Chris Evans has like this he's at the breaking point, right? He's a delicate little flower, he's had enough of this shit, and he reveals his his darkest moment in his life. Right? They moves into the train, um, while while they're he's having this amazing conversation with Ed Harris, the the ravers that we passed through before, they start <laughs> to make their way up. <laughs> and there's sort of this Alamo Davy Crockett thing going on where there's this fight where the guy's outnumbered, but he's not going to give up. And then we have this whole idea of Chris Evans can lead these people around the world, you know, in 80 days, whatever. <laughs> and uh, and I'm I'm starting to lose my shit here. Like, I'm just like, I'm over it at this point. Uh, and it, it literally was reminding me of the whole scene in the Matrix with the architect, and I'm just like, "Are you fucking serious? Like, is this is this really what we're at? Where this is something that happens over and over and over again? It's this cycle." And for me, I, I was just losing it to where I didn't even care about what Ed Harris was was even saying to Chris Evans at this point. I I, I was lost as a viewer, and that's unfortunate because. You know, this movie spent so many, so much time with nonverbal cues telling the story. His Chris Evans looking back, looking forward, making these decisions at these pivotal moments. And then conversation is literally what kills it for me. I think that's fascinating. I, I thought that the nonverbal cues were so powerful that when they started talking, I lost my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I I wasn't in the same boat as you for that. Um, I can see what you're saying with it, but I I do think that um, he Who's like he? I, Chris well, Evans or the director. Well, well, like I was saying earlier, so C Curtis when he gets to the to the engine Curtis room, Evans. Yeah. Well, I thought that was funny. His name was Curtis Everett, and his name is Chris Everett. <laughs> yeah. So. Curtis Evans, Chris Everett, he, he, um, <laughs> when he gets to the engine room, he doesn't have a plan necessarily. He's just so fueled by rage because Gilliam is now dead that he wants to just destroy the engine room or destroy Wilford. There's, there's no real, 
um, solution in his mind. Right. Uh, I mean, that's just it, right? Does he really want to destroy the train? Exactly. When he gets there, yeah, he wants to. He sticks his arm in the moving parts to get the kid out. And all we know is that once, if this kid were to not be in that little engine compartment, the train would stop. Yeah. I mean, they don't die, but the train stops. Well, I mean, I mean sure, it'll freeze eventually. But, I mean, maybe he wants to come up with another solution. Who's he? Uh, Curtis Evans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe he does. But I think that now, since he, he's been on the fence about being a leader, he's swayed easily. And so you have the antithesis to, to basically uh, Gilliam with Wilford. And, and he's guiding him, telling, hey, look, like you, this is your destiny. This is what you were destined to do. And the whole time... During this whole film and his whole life, Curtis hasn't, he's always been unsure of himself. He didn't know what he was meant to do. Um, and this but what, is his... what about the survivors of these revolutions, right? So, like, let's just pretend for a second that Jamie Bell or Octavia Spencer, um, they don't die. Um, how are they to get back to the back of the train? And continue this charade. Do you think that they would? They have to die, and then and then Curtis just gets to the back and just says, "Well, we didn't make it. We're stuck here." And then every whatever couple of years they have another one. We'll try again. Is that literally what it's supposed to be? Well, I mean, so setting aside the fact that it's a sci-fi film and and you have to leave some kind of plot holes like that, um, I, I, they did have the point when they set aside the seven or eight people to go ahead instead of the entire um, inhabitants of the, of the tale. Because... Yeah. Why wouldn't they just bum rush the whole fucking so, place? And that's what I was thinking, but obviously it's to, to add more of like suspense and, and just a storyline to it. Um, but that's when we get the real, real Willy Wonka point is they have to go through these mazes with an ever changing scenery and an ever changing environment. Um, but you're right. Uh, like, what would have happened if Octavia Spencer survived and Chris Evans is like, "Hey, guess what? I'm I'm gonna actually be the conductor, and I need to kill you." Like, well, that 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 might be why Claude was still in the room. Yeah, uh, Claude, Claude was the was the the nice lady. We haven't spoken about Claude. She She's the, she fucking sucked. I yeah, hated her. She's the worst. She doesn't talk much. She was the one that was measuring the children to see their dimensions to see if they could ultimately fit what was later revealed into the um, that little train compartment in the engine room, but. I think she is ultimately the one that's like a failsafe that in the event other survivors made it to the engine room, because he wasn't expecting them to get past whatever, like the water room or whatever. He was like, wow, that was impressive. Well, he said he's the first human who's made it to the engine room. Right. So um, ultimately that qualifies him, I'm guessing, to be the new conductor. Whereas um, I think that Claude, the nice lady in yellow, she is the failsafe, and she would have murdered anybody else that made it past. Yeah, um, I, I want to talk about her really quick, just briefly. She's, I, I was, I was not impressed with her. I didn't think she was menacing at all. I didn't think she was like. I think that they were trying to go for more of like a Dolores Umbridge style, you know, where you just look at her and you're like, I hate you so much. She was boring. I hated her little. Um, 
trademark where she would uh, measure things. Like she measured the bomb of uh, ketone or whatever that stuff was called. Not ketone. I can't remember what that stuff was called. Um, Chernobyl. <laughs> yeah. Um, she, fucking illegal, man. <laughs> where she uh, where she measured that like on the door. Like what was the point of that? That served no purpose. I get the measuring of the children, but the measuring of that made no point. It made no sense. And I think they were just trying to do that as like that was her her trademark. Her she was, yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, that can be left out. But I, I, I know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. She's that kind of insurance policy that if anybody were to come through, she would murder them. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think that in this movie extinction, the whole theme of extinction plays a huge part. I mean, um, they talk about, um, talk mids- about it, talk about it, talk about it. <laughs> What you take me to Snowpiercer <laughs> Town? <laughs> um, Min- um, it's low transpersonals. <laughs> Min Su has uh, ha- has two cigarettes left. Right? It's cigarettes are becoming extinct. People are becoming extinct. Rhinos uh, are becoming extinct. The, the the train itself is becoming extinct. It, it's dying, and Ed Harris says that. That's why he needs the children to keep it running. Is the core is dying. Um, so extinction is a huge theme in this, but what the film is trying to say is extinction is not the end game. And, um, Minsu knows that. And Minsu sees that he's the smart one who is like, we need to get outside of the train. I want to open that gate because that's the one for our salvation. Um, did you, uh, did you understand the ending when you, when you saw it as it, as it played out? Like, did you get it? The ending is, is like with yeah. the polar bear. So yeah, yeah. So so it, train explodes, and um, Yona and Timmy walk out of the train together, holding hands in the snow, and they see a polar bear. Credits. Yeah, I mean, I would, I just interpret that as life exists outside this train, so we can exist too. Like it was a hopeful thing. That's how I would probably interpret it as, yes. unless it's just their lunch, and this polar bear is like, "Fuck yeah, dude! I haven't had a human in like." <laughs> 17 years <laughs> since 19 diggity <laughs> back in 82 back we in used 82. to eat people all the time we used to eat people over the mountains <laughs> <laughs> so that's where i was at i don't know if that's correct but that's what i know I, I, I think that's exactly correct and and i um the I have a quote from the director, actually, but um, I, I didn't grasp it at first more because I was just trying to digest everything. Um, I, I think the ending didn't stick with me at first because I was just like, what the fuck? Um, except for Chris Evans' speech when he talks about eating people, how they had to literally um, eat people in order to survive, survive or what he considered was the means of survival. Um, that wasn't something that he needed to do that was his choice to do like he was so so dedicated to survival that he wanted to actually kill a mother and a baby in order to eat them that part was intense i thought that that was a very good scene um it just was it shook you to the core you were like that's disgusting that's awful but i thought that that was a very good scene um it was like a straight out of undercover boss (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and then they give they pay for Taxi all. Taxi cab confession. I used to watch that on HBO all the time. They showed like two boobs on it. <laughs> yeah, that's almost as many as that chick in Total Recall. <laughs> it's one away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
but extinction is not the end game, like we were saying. And, and when you see the polar bear, uh, it's a sign that life is continuing outside the train, like you were saying. So um, in in an interview, um, Bong Joon-ho was, was quoted as saying, you realize later on that the kids are the ones keeping the engine going and that and this machinery intact. The engine is itself is on its way to extinction along with cigarettes and other goods extinction is a repeated word throughout the film but outside the train life is actually returning it's nature that's eternal and not the train or the engine as you see with the polar bear at the end so extinction is not an end-all be-all with this and, and it's what we think is what it is like we we have to look beyond that, and and I think that um, the only person that truly saw that was Minsu. And Minsu is the guy. <laughs> have you not known the whole time I've been saying Minsu? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, Minsu is the security specialist. The He's the bomb man. Yes, he sniffs sniffs the bomb. He sniffs the the. Ketones or whatever that shit's called. <laughs> Chernobyl. <laughs> it's just the Chernobyl. <laughs> it's fucking illegal, man. Um, and then to spearhead off of that, I'm gonna pose. I'm gonna bring this up too. So, um, I think it's uh, the symbolism of the train itself is incredibly interesting because it's so symbiotic. Um, because the front of a train can't survive without the back necessarily. Um, with this, so like. The front can't survive without those children that the back keep producing because they need those little tiny hands to fit into mm -hmm. the tiny little grease traps and pull the grease out or whatever. Um, but then in, inversely, the back can't survive without the delicious gelatin bars that the front keeps sending them. Um, and this is kind of how the world is, you know. We can't just all be an equal free society as much as it would be amazing to be that we have to have some sort of rules some sort sets of rules and regulations in place to make our society move that doesn't mean that we need to have such disparity in our classes it just means that we need to set certain rules and regulations in place mm -hmm. um does that do you, does that kind of make sense um i think so you're saying that we need those guys on the the bottom of the Titanic throwing the coal in there so that the ship can move. Yep. And the top needs the bottom. Uh, yeah, top needs the bottom for that. The bottom needs the top for survival. So the bottom needs to have food and have a lifestyle. And a lot of those people are making like five cents an hour, however much you made on the Titanic. And they're given a life. But that's the life that they live. Now, is that fair? And we're using the Titanic as an example. It, it, <laughs> Is that That's a boat. This is a train movie. <laughs> is that fair that Billy Zane had all the caviar and all the steak that he wanted, and then meanwhile... And he has a very ambitious butler that's just eager to please. <laughs> meanwhile, Walter Joe Scum down below, he's eating... Well, he's eating coal for dinner. <laughs> piano scraps. <laughs> he's eating piano scraps. <laughs> Shavings of a piano. Like, um, is that fair? No, not, not at all. That's but terrible. he also... He's also given a life, too. So whether or not that quality of life is good is obviously up for debate. And it's pretty clear it's not. <laughs> right. But, but, but you know what's interesting, too? I'm sorry. I totally forgot. I see where you're getting at. But uh, we don't really address that Allison Pill's character, the teacher. She's pregnant. Yeah. So 
I'm curious about that. What are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like that was more just um, for continuity issues because the fact that she is actually pregnant and they didn't want to like hide it or whatever. I, I I don't know. Like, what do you think? I I don't I don't know. <laughs> I really have no answer. I, I was like, wait a minute, this broad's pregnant, and they got a whole classroom full of kids that could fit in that train. <sighs> but they're the, they're the wealthy kids. They're the ones that are getting the and, and they're all a certain age. Which is interesting too. It's not like there are multiple schoolhouses. It's like there's a, a time uh, and a place to have these kids. So it makes you wonder if uh, they have them at a certain, like every whatever, seven years, ten years, the, the front of the train gets to make babies. I don't know. Date well, night when it's when it's sushi time or something. I don't know. <laughs> sushi time two two times a year. Um, so actually, what I think it is is. Um, and they talk about this too that uh, Tilda Swinton, uh, Tilda Swinton, she she explains to the tale in like one of the in the first ten fifteen minutes or whatever that scene where the guy gets his arm frozen, which right. I thought yes. was really re- really cool. That was a really cool scene. Yeah, she has seven minutes to do her speech. Yep. Was it real time with the movie? Did that go seven minutes? I don't know. I didn't time it. That's interesting. That that would be a fun fact. I didn't I refuse to watch it again. Yeah, I, I didn't see anything that said that. Um, but uh, she explains that if all the classes were were organized by you know first class economy and then the freeloaders, right? And you, you <laughs> goddamn <are>, moochers, <laughs> you are born into your existence, and that is your place in life. Yikes. So if you are middle class, you cannot go backwards nor can you go forward so i think that's kind of what what that is so those children that that essentially represents the middle class and how the middle class can be manipulated i mean they all believe this propaganda of wilford and stuff but they know nothing about the 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 inhabitants of the fish they don't know nothing nothing about poverty other than it's bad i mean even the story that they they hear about the seven who tried to escape the train. They spin that in a negative way. Like, you go outside the train, you die, or whatever. And they right. do that weird chop thing. They're, they're the middle class are the kind of people that politicians pander to. Yes. Um, and I think that by her showing that she's pregnant, I mean, the back of the train isn't the only class of people that are making children. It's just that their children are being used for putting to work. And, and they are brought for specific needs when they are needed whereas the middle class can afford to not have their children work they can go to school and live an actual life and be a functioning adult um i think that's kind of functioning at the raves and the spas well and i think the raves and the spas are are more of the higher class again this is stuff that's not really explained too much in it because i think that it would just be pointless to explain it but yes um they that is their life and their society like justin i i never grew up in 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 poverty i mean i i didn't grow up in any type of um my parents weren't affluent or crazy rich or anything like that i mean we had some money and then we had times when we didn't have money you had two television sets we had one wait yeah we had one i had a 20 inch tv it was cool my monitor right now is bigger than that which is crazy what a time to be alive um but uh, I so I I can't I never experienced how it was to to be homeless or to be so incredibly rich that I could get two TV sets right. Oh my god! Um, I, I know right <laughs> with with a universal remote <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and TiVo to boot. Uh, 
but that's the world that they grow up in and that's the world that she's going to birth that child well before she got shot up so well i mean she she deserved it she pulled a gun out of the egg basket you don't do that to eggs oh yeah that's gross i don't like eggs i love eggs i eat i eat three eggs every morning tell me get strong like gaston i don't (laughs) don't eat them (laughs) don't cook them I don't even dye them at Easter. <laughs> I fucking hate eggs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this movie is incredibly loaded with with different themes and and different discussion points, and we could talk about this for hours. I All mean, day. Um, I, I think it's it's just so interesting. So I, I can definitely see why um, the critics loved this movie. Um, it just. I'm on the same boat with you in the sense of it wasn't the best watch. I didn't think it was boring. boring. I, I didn't. I didn't think it was boring because you were like, you were really anti Dude, this. You're like, I, I fucking had the suicide hotline on hold the whole time I was watching this movie. That is not funny, Justin. <laughs> um, There's no joke I, there. Shut up. <laughs> um, what is okay? You just said, I hope you love it because you were like. I didn't like it when I watched it, but then after discussing it, I liked it. It's so slow. I can't get into this movie. Um, so I was trying so hard to be like, Justin's wrong. But unfortunately, I acquiesced a bit, and I I realized that, yes, there were some very boring parts and parts that I was like, why the hell did they do that? But after discussion, after sitting on it, I... I think that this movie is incredibly intriguing. I think that it has a lot of good points, and it's a classic sci-fi film. It's thought-provoking. So I think it's a good movie. <laughs> it's mind-bottling. Mind-bottling. <laughs> but, okay, you know, so we were talking exactly. earlier about it being cyclical, and even the train itself is going around the world. You know, it's, yeah. it's, doing, it's literally doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, and and then their only their only point of reference is when they get to that bridge. That's their yeah. happy new year, right? Like right. It, Everything it takes... stops. They do the countdown. Dick Clark's still alive. <laughs> he's except he's Asian now for some reason. <laughs> um, so their their concept of time, though, even in that, is shortened because who knows? That's three hundred sixty five days. They don't know that. They just created a point where. Look, this is the bridge. We're gonna say every time we hit this, that's a full year revolution. This seventeen years is is has to have an asterisk on it because this could be like two years, maybe. Right. This could be like ten hours, maybe. Like, they don't know. Yeah, just like Avengers and Avatar, asterisk. <laughs> that's stupid. <laughs> uh, so uh, overall, so I, what do you give this movie? What you got to give it a letter grade. You got a gun to your head. You don't know if they're out of bullets or not, and you got to give it a grade. What do you give it? B plus. B plus. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, 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 I'm intrigued, and I, and I really, really wish that they it was better. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I really like the subject matter and, and what they did. I just think that it took me away from some of the really shitty CGI um, because I, I almost feel like they didn't need to do that and still get the point across because some of it was just awful. Plus, I hated the hitman, the um, the older guy who just like didn't uh, die. Yeah, didn't die. I was like, you. I look like I could just punch you in the face and you need to be dead. I mean, he just he's all old and I don't know. It just didn't look scary to me. 
their their villain choice in this, aside from Tilda Swinton and aside from Ed Harris, was pretty weak. Yeah, he looks like the guy that was in Goodwill Hunting when he says, "Hey, do you like apples? I got a number. How do you like them apples?" Oh, <laughs> I feel like it's that guy. <laughs> it could be. That'd be funny if it was <laughs> Matt Matt Damon's nemesis. Matt Damon. <laughs> Doug Doug Masters. Masters. <laughs> No, you can deal with me now. Doug Masters. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, what what is your letter grade for this movie? Ugh, I give it a pass. No, you have to give it a letter grade. We're not doing that bullshit pass. P! <laughs> P is in pneumonia. Give me, give me a letter grade. Uh, I, I, give it a, I give it a B minus. Ooh, see? So it wasn't as bad as you thought, though. I mean, it's pretty terrible. I'm giving it... I would give it a C plus, but I don't want to be that guy. It's it's better. It's it is a great art house movie. How about absolutely? That? I, I I think again, guys, this is one that I implore you all to watch and just take it with a grain of salt, and then start watching some of those YouTube videos we watched. I watched a wisecrack one that was excellent. Uh, yeah, every frame of painting. Wisecrack, see? <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a lot of good material out there. Nerdwriter one has a good one. Um, there's a lot of good material out there for this, and that, that really kind of helps spark the ideas. Well, not spark, but give that extra push for the ideas that you already kind of have. Because it, it, it just was clarity for me after that. I'm like, okay, cool. That's what I was thinking. I just didn't know how to verbally say it, essentially. Right. So, um. Great. That's all I have on this, man. Oh, thank God. This well, let me, the worst. Let me uh, let me scroll up really quick and just make sure. Uh, did you think it was funny when uh, Edgar was like, or when Curtis Chris Evans was like, "I'm no leader," and Edgar's like, "I think you'd be a great leader," and I was like, "Oh, because he's Captain America and he's you know." And then yeah, I thought that was funny. Um, I oh, what is this? I, I wrote in here, Claude is dumb. <laughs> I, I didn't like her. She was yeah, stupid. She was terrible. She can, she can use that tape measure to see how much we hate her. And then at the end, I put, what the actual fuck? <laughs> question mark, question mark. Um, yeah. I'm sure there's some symbolism in there, too, about um, uh, losing your limbs. Like, uh, they always have something where, you know, the self-sacrifice of the arms by... Um, Gilliam to the people and then also the Scottish guy at the beginning where he gets his arm frozen off. I'm sure that there's some sort of thing there. I just didn't dive into that too much. Right. Um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's, you know, your hands are your tools, you know, the things that you, you know, even, even, um, hurt. What was his name? Gilliam. Yeah. He's got no legs. You know, it's taking away, you know, things that you need to feel, you know, human and, I don't know. I feel like that's what it was doing. What it was like dehumanizing them. But I also think that it in inversely it it gives them humanity because he was cutting off his limbs to feed others to save a life. Essentially, he's being human. Chris Evans was not being human. Chris Evans wanted to kill a goddamn baby because he said they taste better. Yeah. Like like it, that scene was crazy can't but, have you going around eating babies yeah captain america can't be eating babies we'll, we'll allow one but i mean come a, on it's a bad pr move yeah if disney gets a hold of this one. yeah if this shit gets out it ain't gonna fly um i also uh did you ever see brazil terry gilliam's brazil uh no 
So um, it's fun fact too, and I should add this into trivia. Uh, John Hurt's character Gilliam was named after Terry Gilliam. Uh, Terry was big on um, films about like Zero Theorem and stuff in Brazil. Films about the bleak future and the idea of human choice and what's real and what's not. Very Matrixy level shit, but before the Matrix. Um, I love Terry Gilliam. Um, I think he's a genius. Uh, but, <laughs> but get out of here. Get out of here. That's uh that's a bold statement. Oh really? Why? Oh man. Like so Dave Edmondson from yeah. the Geek Legacy Podcast. He, snacky it, cakes. It is uh yes, uh at snacky underscore cakes. He every time he hears the name Terry Gilliam, he gets the same sensation of when it burns to pee. <laughs> he, <laughs> he is not a fan of Mr. Gilliam. Can't can't get behind that man. All right, I'm gonna tweet at him then. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I there are certain movies that I've seen. I'm like, why did I watch? And I was like, why did I watch that? But then I stopped and I was like, okay, I can dive into this a little bit more and I can see his vision. And I think he's visionary. I think it's really cool. Um, I I really appreciate him for that sense. He's not my favorite. He's not my favorite director by any means, but I really do love his work. I I, I think that it's, it's bold. Um, It's, it's along the lines of Verhoeven. Um, Dude, he knew what he was doing and he was ahead of his time. Uh, We talked about that with Starship Troopers and Total Recall and Robocop. I mean, Robocop is about capitalism and he's just like, this is what the world will come to. And it's so cool. Um, So, I don't know. That's that's just kind of how I feel about it. But that's fair. Yeah. Goddamn Dave Edmondson. <laughs> yeah. Um. Sweet man. Well, that was fun. It was fun. I like. I had that. A, I had a good time talking about this movie that I can't stand. I know. I. Uh, it was good to do this tonight too, because for the next four days I'm going to be out in the woods, uh, backpacking. I'm probably going to like have some sort of Terry Gilliam visions when I'm out there. You might. You might. You're going to come back like Brad Pitt in 12 Monkeys and be a weirdo. That's another Terry Gilliam movie. That's a great one. I know. That's why I said it. All right. It's your choice. <laughs> it's your choice next there, friendo. Is it really? Yep. I thought I just had a choice. No, I did Snowpiercer because before that you did uh, District 9 and I did Snowpiercer. Um, I promise i will not poo poo any of your choices if you want to do some big live action uh uh mad max free road shit i am 100 percent down for that because i fucking love that movie and i think we can dive a lot into it but i am all ears for whatever you want good sir so what i want to do is i want to compare a remake to an original and argue which one is better uh-huh Tell me more. So, tell me more. So, and, and and in the vein of remakes, I think some of the more ambitious ones tend to be um, horror films, only because um, horror fans can be uh, a unique bunch that are diehards for their their franchises and um, get grossly offended by the idea of a remake but i <laughs> but i do think there are some out there that uh you could argue are just as good if not better than the original so ultimately what i'm going to do is reach out to uh the twitterverse and the spiderverse and <laughs> the my face and insta space and all these other places <laughs> and the and, porn hubs and, yeah now we're talking <laughs> and uh 
I would really like to see a, a horror movie argument for a remake versus an original. And I think that we'll be surprised with some of the results. So, I mean, whether it be uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hills Have Eyes, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, whatever. Um, I don't really care. We can, we can go We can go big or we can go home. I have a nice place. I'm very comfortable <laughs> there. Um, but I do think it's worth a discussion. Yeah, and I so I, I we posted that on the on the Twitter play, uh, page at DV Crazy Pod, and uh, we got some awesome responses uh, last week. I, I think we should continue to dive off of that, but um, especially if we want to do horror specific. But Ken Stoltz did Ocean's Eleven, Sorcerer, Cape Fear. Cape Fear is a good one. I did not know that was a remake. I completely forgot about that. Actually, um, what else do we have here? Uh, Bill and Ted. Dune, um, Texas so Dune, Dune's interesting because there's a new one obviously being made, mm-hmm. um, so I would want to wait on that one. But yeah, Texas Chainsaw, fucking the it, uh, but we can't do it until Chapter Two comes out, mm-hmm. um, only because the made-for-TV version explored the entire story. Yeah, agreed. Uh, uh, FTN Steve, our buddy Steve, says Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, The Thing, which you know how I feel about The Thing, um, Evil Dead, uh, the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003. So he had a lot of good like horror yeah. films. Uh, I think Evil Dead would be really interesting because I haven't seen the new Evil Dead, and it's been a very long time since I've seen the original Evil Dead. Um, so, so, that... I, so I actually really, 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 really enjoy the new evil dead movie by mm-hmm. Fede alvarez i thought it was fantastic i i actually reviewed it for geek legacy when it came out mm-hmm. i went to a screening for it and um i saw it by myself and i was terrified did you the did you laugh the whole time because you laugh when you're scared I, I laughed a lot but <laughs> i i was legitimately scared like, that movie was intense whereas uh the thing about uh you know 70s and 80s horror is it's very campy it's very cheesy and even when it tries to take itself seriously a lot of times it loses something in it when you watch it as an adult when it came out whatever 20 or 30 years ago before you were even born kind of thing um it's hard to really relate to it whereas when you're a kid and you're watching these movies it these people look like you know your older siblings or you know it could be your parents or something like that so you know, when I was watching A Nightmare on Elm Street when I was, you know, whatever, eight years old, it was pretty horrifying. Um, but then, and even something like Last House on the Left or Hills Have Eyes, you know, I grew up in the desert and seeing this this freaking cannibal family in the desert, that's, that's intense. That's that's a hard pill to swallow. More of a suppository. <laughs> you want to sit on that thing. And so, uh, you know, I could relate to that and be really scared, whereas watching it as an adult, the original anyway... I feel like it loses something, and so I and and something like uh, Scream, for example, where it makes fun of these horror tropes and it and it's very meta. It's really cool to see how they make their decisions um, differently, and and I love that. You know, it's a very new um, take on the horror genre, which basically you know revitalized it. And I thought that was fantastic. I wrote, I actually got a scholarship writing an essay about Scream and how it. Uh, is going to sort of kickstart the horror genre again, you know, and this is like 1996, but yeah, I got, I got a, I got a couple hundred bucks out of this scholarship for writing an essay on Scream. So thank you, Scream. Yeah. 
No, it, it, it's very meta. It's just like Cabin in the Woods. I mean, that's kind of the same thing. It's something we haven't seen in quite a while, and it reinvigorated the horror franchise. Yeah. Um, real quick, our buddy Rob put uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, which I think is a good choice as well. Um, Scarface, The Fly, Magnificent Seven, um, The Mummy, which I know Randy, that's his favorite movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mum, I, Mummy's good. I like The Mummy. I Yeah, I, I, I remember watching that in theaters, and I fucking loved that movie. Um, buddy Aaron says, Jumanji and A Star is Born. That horror movie, A Star is Born. Um, so that, okay, that's, a, that's another thing, too. So I would actually look at Jumanji, you know, as a sequel. And, yeah. and, and, I, and I'm open also like that, you know, I would love for us to have this conversation about a sequel being superior to the original. Oh, I, I, think, I think I think that's a fair argument, too. I think that'd be fun. I think we should do a remake one for for this go around and then I'll sure. I'll, I'll pose a question for the sequel one for the next one. So, yeah, well, we can't include trilogies. If it's a saga or a trilogy, I don't think it should count. OK, well, I mean, yeah, so there's some options there and we'll uh you can reach out to the Twitter sphere and try to find some more. But, um, I mean, I, I think those are all good from our, from our homies. And, um, I think we can, we can work with that. So I'm down for whatever, man, but I think horror, horror genre is probably the way to go. Just because like you were saying, I, I it's one of those ones that's a, a constant and, and it gets better with time and remakes just help it. Essentially. It just reinvigorates the, the love of horror. Right. Someone that's, that is, gets to pick the movie and they go for a horror movie and they're in the you know whatever eight to to 14 range and they legitimately get scared at the remake but they laugh at the original <laughs> right well, like, I know how that works yeah i mean well and, and and that's just that's just with the times but you're you're absolutely right i just I, I think that's just one of the things but um i'm totally down for that so sweet cool Thank you for listening to the Don't Be Crazy Podcast. Remember to follow us on Twitter at DBCrazyPod, at EdgyArmo, and at ZachDale60, where you can share your thoughts with us and we'll discuss them on our show. Heck, you can even tell us what movie you think we should watch for our next episode. Just please remember, don't be crazy. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. He said it! Yay! (laughs) 